hello, and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. I'm Percy, and I'm here today with Todd. Hello. And Nick. Hi there. We are here today to do a deep dive on the work of Augusto Bawal and the way the tools of theater of the oppressed work within tabletop role-playing games and vice versa, with an eye towards the ways in which games and theater are or can be political. In putting together this episode, we're taking some inspiration from the orientation toward politics encouraged by the kids on bike genre, in which ordinary people are encouraged to take action against oppressive forces and power structures represented by faceless authority figures. Uh, so to sort of kick us off, um, Augusto Boal's Poetics of the Oppressed come from uh, Paolo Freire, and if I'm pronouncing that wrong, I'm deeply sorry, uh, Paolo, um, his uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which is a teaching philosophy um, that sort of rejects the what he calls the banking model of education, which is which is this idea that uh, there are people who are experts or who are sort of like holders of cultural knowledge, and it's their responsibility to sort of like passive like everybody else has to passively receive that knowledge from them. Um, so it sort of creates this hierarchy in terms of who has access to knowledge. And his idea was sort of that we should you know uh, democratize it. Um, and his whole thing was. Uh, conscientization, uh, which is the act of raising one's consciousness and teaching them that they can learn or become owners of knowledge themselves and that they can then use that knowledge to take action against oppressive forces in their lives. Um, his whole thing was sort of empowering people to sort of take knowledge into their own hands and to sort of make everything more democratic, more collaborative, and to sort of undo these hierarchies. Um, and that was rooted in him viewing uh, people who are oppressed as subjects rather than objects. Um, and in turn, those subjects are able to control, change, affect power structures. Uh, so from from Paolo Freire's model of the, the idea of the banking model of education and trying to create a pedagogy of the oppressed, Augusto Ball uh, works to create a theater of the oppressed, which is also the title of his seminal book, um, which the goal of which is turning the practice of theater into an effective tool for the comprehension of social and personal problems and the search for their solutions, end quote. The, sorry, he defines his goal as, quote, to change the people, spectators, passive beings in the theatrical phenomenon, into subjects, into actors, transformers of the dramatic action, unquote. Um, so he's looking at theater in the same way that Freire is looking at uh, education and saying th this same banking model relationship is happening here, where in education, there's the teacher who holds all the knowledge and is like doling that out to the passive students in the arts. It's the artists, it's the actors and directors and playwrights who hold all the like creativity, all the creative power, all the storytelling power, and are then just like doling stories out to this passive audience of spectators. Um, and one of his other big uh, uh, theoretical contributions to the field uh, that kind of create, uh, I shouldn't say created because I don't know that that's strictly true, um, but certainly hugely influenced the development of applied theater in the 70s and 80s and 90s up through today was the argument building on Bertolt Brecht, among others, that theater is inherently political, that not only the stories we tell, but the ways that we tell them um, are parts of our politics and the ways that we live our lives. Mm -hmm. um, well, and I would argue that like going back to even the Elizabethan era, um, like that was recognized in the theater because you had, uh, who was it? 
I can't remember their formal title, but there was someone who had to like vet every play that was going to be done Mm -hmm. because the fear of political messaging and political uprisings as a result of them was so great and so recognized even in, you know, the what, 14 to 1600s that they like, they were like, yeah, we got to do something about that. Quash that down. Yeah. And what Bilal does is take that even a step farther and say it's not just the the content of the stories that are being told, but the actual like Aristotelian system, the European system of there are actors on a stage who are separated from you and they perform to you, the passive audience who sit in your seats and receive the story that in itself is a political machination designed to keep the people writ large passive and subdued uh, he has a whole thing in his first chapter about catharsis and how catharsis is just like we got you know aristotle's idea of catharsis is basically just like we got to take all the emotions that could make people hard to rule and like purge it out and then we'll be good because they'll be passive and like once a year they can go to the theater and like vent all their pity and anger and rage and then they'll be like good subjects which is a like uh it's a polemical reading of aristotle <laughs> to say the least but it, but it, it raises good and provocative points yeah i would say he's entirely wrong <laughs> <laughs> oh good we're getting into our beefs with Boal already <laughs> um are you no, talking well, about aristotle i i wouldn't say that he's wrong about aristotle <laughs> um but we'll we'll get into this a little bit later yeah so one of the things that Boal introduces that we've talked about on the podcast before is the idea of the spect actor. Um, we've made reference to this even going back to the first season, but we figured we should dive into it in a little more detail. The idea behind the spect actor is to make theater participatory. It's about bringing a member of what would normally be constituted as the audience on stage to participate in the theatrical event and propose a solution to the conflict presented on stage, which in traditional theater of the oppressed is always a, you know, current social conflict for the people who are in the, uh, again, in what I can only say would normally be constituted as the audience. So, you know, may I've seen this done as like uh, somebody trying to figure out how to get rent relief and going and applying for rent relief and being rejected or asking their landlord for help and uh, getting none and then bringing uh, act br- bringing normal people not trained actors in to kind of perform and propose solutions to the uh, problem that's being presented again this is a rejection of the you know european model of a passive spectator uh, and is a really heavy rewriting of the traditional roles of director, of actor, of playwright into these kind of social interventionists. Yeah. So one of the ways that this manifests um, most concretely um, is Boal's idea of forum theater, um, where the actors, you know, are um, performing a conflict and they will showcase like one solution to that conflict, which is usually like not a great solution inherently. Um, And then the idea is to ask the audience, the spectators, um, are there other things that we could do instead? And then you kind of like rewind, do the play again, and then the audience can tell you to stop. And then someone who has an idea will like come up on stage, tap in, for an actor who's already on stage, and then they will perform 
what they should have done instead. So like in one example, he's talking about this like fish canning factory and someone was like, we should overload the machine so that they break down so that we can take breaks instead of doing these like 12 hour day shifts. And the spectators were like, no, that's terrible. And someone's like, let's do a bomb. And they like blow up the factory. But then everyone in the cast is like, "Okay, this was like maybe a good idea. But also now we don't have a place to work. So like we're out of a job now. So what do we do there? So they like rewound again and a different audience member proposed another solution and then another and another. And it allows the audience um, and the actors, uh, so the spectators and the actors, to like view these problems from different angles and play out what the ramifications of some of these solutions might be um, and try to think through like what is the ideal version of this. Um, and part of this is to one cast these spectators as the protagonists both in this story but also in their own lives so that they can see that they don't have to be passive people um they can rise up they can take action um but also it's scary to take action if you haven't like thought about what the consequences might be i remember another um, example from Boal's book is about like a woman who finds out that her husband is cheating on her. Um, and so one option is to leave the husband. Um, but in South America, uh, where they were doing these examples, she was like, okay, but now this woman is destitute. Um, so like, does she punish herself by leaving? And so are there like other ways that we might do this? But if you were just in that situation on your own, you might take an action and not you might just have to live with the consequences instead of being able to like game out what might those consequences be. Can can we tangent real quick about the solution arrived on by that forum theater group? Oh yeah, it gets really weird. And the solution <laughs> that both the community and the actors agree is best is to beat your husband and then serve him dinner and pretend everything's fine <laughs> because... He neither leaves you, nor do you have to forgive him outright without him getting a comeuppance, um, which I don't think I would recommend as the go-to solution, but that's the solution they came to as a community. An entirely different culture and time and place, so. Yeah. But yeah, it's a little, uh, from a U.S. 2022 perspective it comes as a little bit of a left left turn at the end of that example <laughs> so what you're saying is forum theater is like a formal version of when you um ask your group chat what text like how to phrase your risky text that you're going to send uh yeah. to your partner <laughs> absolutely <laughs> what is the group chat but not our modern day forum exactly <laughs> anyway <laughs> um so i uh, as we've as we've discussed, Bilal uh, is sort of explicitly framing, you know, explicitly presenting these um, sort of political or like uh, these situations that are oriented around social issues. Um, and part of this is because his work came out of the context of uh, like 1960s Brazil, where there was a great deal of civil unrest. There was military dictatorship. There was a lot of very, very bad stuff happening. And there was a lot of like the co the context was just like very, very difficult to live in. And there were a lot of problems that people may not necessarily have felt really empowered to sort of take on. Um, they might not have 
felt that they as individuals had the power to sort of fight back against these oppressive structures or these things that were really, really difficult for them to live through. Um, and Bawal was sort of looking to to intervene in that and to sort of say, actually, no, like you, you can get this experience. You can like try things out and figure things out. And we can all sort of work together to empower each other to sort of take these things on. And it was all sort of informed by these critiques that we've sort of referenced of um, of Aristotle, um, of Brecht, of all of these sort of other theater traditions that were sort of oriented around, like, how can we keep the audience passive? How can we um, uphold the principles of the ruling classes? How can we sort of uphold capitalism? Um, he sort of, in his book, he sort of traces this whole lineage of the various ways in which the audience is disempowered uh, or like the content of theater is intended to sort of keep people um, oppressed. And he sort of throughout labels theater as a tool of domination that uses empathy to teach people principles that uphold the state as opposed to uphold, you know, whatever is in their personal self-interest um, or, you know, allows them to sort of center their own self-interest as opposed to what the state uh, requires of them. Uh, but he, for example, he says, quote, all must be protagonists in the necessary transformations of society. So, again, he's really sort of looking to put everybody on stage and put everybody in the in the position of being able to act um, as opposed to sort of passively saying like, OK, like I'm just going to see see what goes on and get, you know, everything that I'm doing from what's being presented to me on stage. Uh, and another way that he refers to this that is, I think, again, like using this really explicitly political language, um, he calls poetics of the oppressed a seizing of the means of theatrical production, um, which is obviously like very Marxist in its uh, in its politic. He calls it like the liberation of the spectator. Um, he talks about eliminating the private property of the characters by the individual actors because you have this phenomenon of like the same character being played by multiple people. So essentially, right, he's sort of stripping away all of these sort of theatrical conventions and focusing explicitly on action and the power of action um, and sort of bringing the spectator in to take a part in it. Um, he says, quote, uh, the spectator delegates no power to the character or actor either to act or to think in his place. On the contrary, he himself assumes the protagonic role, changes the dramatic action, tries out solutions, discusses plans for change, in short, trains himself for real action. And the quote that you will hear that I think we've already said during this episode, but the quote that you hear a ton about theater of the oppressed is that it is a rehearsal for revolution. Um, his idea was, you know, if you, in the context of forum theater, mime throwing a Molotov cocktail at a government building, you know, when you when it comes time to throw a Molotov cocktail at a government building, you are ready to do it. Um, cause you feel, cause you've been in a situation where you've kind of done it before. Um, so yeah. I do have to say, I, because I think it is important context on Bawal and I want to preface this by saying, I, I can't remember where this story, uh, is written down. I don't remember if it's in theater of the oppressed or in one of his other books. And I do believe it changed the way that he approached his work, but there is a pretty well-known story about how early in this work, Boal and some of his actors were performing for some, I believe it was some farmers in rural Brazil. And after the performance where they were like, rise up, uh, some of the farmers came to them and they were like, you know, we have guns like we can do this. You want to go kill the landowners with us? And Boal was like, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, um, so I, yeah. I just, I just I think it's we'll get into this more later, but the rehearsal part of rehearsal for the revolution is uh, pretty key there. And again, I do think that also did change 
both his attitude toward the spectator and the types of things he began working, the types of social problems he began working on under uh, the umbrella of theater of the oppressed. There's also an interesting, um, there's an interesting line that he draws between like, uh, oh, I never know how to say this properly. Aristotelian? Aristotelian? Aristotelian. Sure. I don't, no one cares. Um, (laughs) Out here pronouncing Aristotle like Chipotle. (laughs) Like Chipotle. Um, But he says that like, those performances the ending is already known um and so the performance is not a rehearsal the performance is a finished thing and he viewed forum theater as a rehearsal because the ending was not known we would together rehearse different ideas through this performance of what like an ideal solution might be and i thought that that was an interesting usage of the language in terms of like the context of what he was using it in like yes in some ways it is to rehearse for the revolution in the future but also like literally the performances are rehearsal which i just found as an interesting distinction between how he's using this word that may have been and i i wish i remembered better but i don't um but that may have been the shift that happened after the after the kalashnikov incident Mm -hmm. um was the shift from like polemical, like f- from polemical Marxist theater to <laughs> what if rather than telling you all to go get shot, we see what solutions you want to propose? Um, but I can't swear by that. And I do think it's but I, I think it points to one of the real, real challenges of both the like ball and to a lesser extent, the Freire model. I, I can't I haven't read Pedagogy of the Oppressed. So I can't speak to it directly, but um you know, it's the question of have have we actually eliminated expertise or like authority or have we just shifted? Have we just cannily shifted it onto ourselves as the theatrical practitioners, as the theater of the oppressed practitioners? And we've shifted like we've said, OK, now you have all the narrative agency, but also we're the people who know creating what the, the structures the context are in which. Yeah, like because yeah, because he talks a lot about um, like his big critique of like the empathy that he identifies in various theatrical forms. Like he was all about Brechtian alienation, but he was also like, you know, people should participate directly. But he was very much into like fiction. Fiction isn't useful for what he's trying to do, because he's sort of like if you're asking somebody to make a choice or like decide what they would have done in a situation that is fictitious, like when it comes time to like make that decision later, it doesn't, it's not the same because the circumstances will be completely different. So he is like very much all about like, let's talk about like real, real things. And like, he talks a lot in his book about like the audience as subject and the audience as object. And I, I get a little bit lost in it because it's a little bit hard to feel like it's a little bit uh, circuitous and difficult to follow. But I do agree that that's like a, a question um in terms of like how meaningfully are you actually shifting the agency onto the audience well one of the whole problems with that setup is that like the presumption the, the the underlying presumption is that audiences need to be taught how to be subjects rather than being like, like that that the audiences are not only uh forced into relationships of objectification with art or with society or whatever but are in fact objectified and lack not only the means but the like willpower and knowledge and consciousness to 
Whereas clearly the the Brazilian farm workers who offered Boal and his theater troupe <laughs> guns were like clearly aware of their agency and power. I mean, this is going on off on a whole different tangent, but there's a very good uh, understated but real critique of this whole presumption in uh, my my problematic fave uh, Jacques Rancière's essay, The Emancipated Spectator, where he basically talks about this. He's talking about theater, but he's also talking about this relationship, like historically between leftist theorists and the working class, mm-hmm. where he he tells this story about reading i think it was like 19th century he's french reading 19th century like french uh industrial workers letters to each other and he has this like blinding revelation when reading about their uh when reading about one of their uh holidays where they had a day off and they wrote to whoever about like what they did on their day off and he was like oh they like it it's not that they don't know how to like make sense of their world or like how to aestheticize it or like like it's not actually lacking they just literally didn't have time because <laughs> like that was the, th- the thing that was lacking in his analysis is not actually like knowledge or consciousness is literally just like hours not spent scrambling to earn a living which I think is a really uh, challenging critique of this work <laughs> that's founded on the assumption that audiences need to be taught how to be active <laughs> from that wild tangent. Uh, but talking still about action, Ball's Poets of the Oppressed is obsessed with action. And that's one reason that so much of his work involves uh, physical games and improvisation. Um, there's a strong emphasis on emotion, on breaking out of mechanical movement in the body. This is all rooted in the idea of the like alienated worker. Uh, and he is very uh, he's very interested in not simply talking, not proposing theoretical solutions, but in actually performing them. That's why, like we just talked about with forum theater, it's all about getting up on your feet and acting out the solution rather than just saying it to the actors. So this raises the question for us. What's the difference between games and theater? Is there one? Should there be one? Uh, And how do those differences impact the ways that Boal's principles can be applied to this, to, to the work of games? I think one of the interesting things about this is that games, by definition, require direct participation, while theater does not. Yeah, like I think spectatorship is a is a significant development and phenomenon in theater because, like, prior to that point, right, like the like that audiences weren't directly participating unless, or I don't even know what the world of like, immer- I don't even know if that I don't know if there was immersive or participatory or whatever type of theater up until that point in like a significant consistent way but um yeah like games don't function if there aren't people directly engaging and participating in them like the like yeah it's spectatorship i would argue is still like a thing that is at play in games because you are simultaneously acting as audience member and participant however there is no gameplay without that and i think it's worth saying that one of the reason one of the whole reasons behind this podcast is because this kind of spectatorship relationship is particularly clear in tabletop role playing games which are both game and narrative you know there is a narrative in chess but it's mostly a narrative about playing chess um <laughs> so that's that's one of the things that is 
so interesting about this is that in TTRPGs, uh, we have that spectatorship relationship of being both a watcher and a participant in the game with your fellow players. Um, so looking at uh, like how can games be used outside of their just like gameplay context, like if we're thinking of Bawal as doing applied theater, is there such a thing as like an applied tabletop game, um, which like. Yes and no. Um, Scott, I am hoping I'm not butchering his last name, Kupferschmidt, um, in Gaming for Change, using role-playing games in group work with children and adolescents, um, he uh, talks about a proposal for a study um, in, I think this was the 1819 um, year, Um, but he looks at a bunch of different um, psychologists who have tried to use um, TTRPGs in the place of group therapy um, because it allows its participants to um, gain skills um, in collaboration, cooperation, mutual aid, problem solving, um, enhancing social skills like impulse control and decision making, um, and also fostering like leadership skills for people which I thought was uh, an interesting way of looking at games because I don't think that games necessarily set out to teach you to do these things, um, but they do force you to do all of those things. Um, like, I don't think D&D is trying to teach anyone how to make decisions better, but it does force you to encounter situations, think about solutions, do all of this problem-solving stuff, and so it can be used for socialization it can be used for teaching problem solving in ways um, that allows us to take those things into our daily lives and he cites um, scott cites a bunch of different studies from like the 80s the 90s the early aughts Um, so people have been doing this for a while and while i personally can't imagine anyone specifically trying to apply the rules of forum theater um, into a ttrpg session where like you're role-playing going to town hall and then you like play out a bunch of different ways that you could like get your city councilors to like agree to a proposal you're doing. I don't see a game specifically trying to do that, but I could see people trying to do that um, in a gamified way. Um, I'm not sure if kids on bikes has that baked into the core text um, though I think you could explore a bunch of those things, but I wonder if something like Shadowrun, which is this like dystopic cyberpunk future, um, which often leads people into anti-corporate sentiments, um, could be seen as a type of uh, a game that is designed to evoke certain emotions in your players that they can then take out into the real world. Um, and I wonder if that's something uh, that is similar to this like applied theater, applied gaming um, sort of situation. One thing that I do think Kids on Bikes has in common with Bowal's work is the is its powered character, because I think like I would make an argument that like the power character mechanic makes it so that the character with psychic powers does not become the protagonist of the story, because I think very easily that person could be the protagonist of like a game of Kids on Bikes. And it's sort of intentionally says okay everybody is in charge of this protagonist and everybody can step in and everybody is able to sort of like guide this protagonist in a in a direction and i think that that's interesting particularly and i think we're going to talk about 
empathy a little bit more later. Um, but I think like in the vein of these psychological studies, empathy is one of the things that tabletop games is really good at teaching because like the act of stepping into a character inherently teaches you empathy as well as like relating via that character to situations that you probably wouldn't necessarily come across um, in real life. Okay. Well, and um, like can playing protagonist characters in grand sweeping narrative RPGs allow us to view ourselves more as protagonists in our own lives instead of just like people that things happen to. Yeah. Like I think if the point of like conscientization, which is a word that I cannot, I'm not confident of saying it right, but we're doing our best. <laughs> if the act of consciousness raising is about us as people um, becoming empowered to feel like we can take on oppressive structures and be- becoming empowered to like, feel like we have agency in our own lives. I think that that's really true. I think that like the act of playing a tabletop game does sort of give you the tools that you need and sort of develops your sense of like, what would I do in X, Y, Z situation? And while you might not necessarily like encounter a dragon in real life that you have to, you know, dissuade from terrorizing a nearby village. um, I don't know, maybe your boss is terrible and you can you know recall your negotiations like I'm, it sounds silly but i'm <laughs> mostly serious like um yeah I, I think i think that like this does some of the consciousness raising work that poetics of the oppressed and pedagogy of the oppressed are sort of setting out to do mm-hmm. remember kids dungeons and drama nerds endorses stabbing your awful boss with a magic sword no we don't <laughs> <laughs> thank you corporate um so <laughs> Well, like jumping back to um, Scott Kupferschmidt's uh, piece, um, one of the things that he talked about in it's basically like this proposal that he was pitching um, for uh, this doing this group work with these um, largely young boys that had trouble socializing. But something that he did that I thought was fascinating was he laid out these like 10 sessions um, of gameplay. And in the first like three, all of the focus is on um, problems that the party needs to solve together um, such that the players could learn to like work with and for one another. And he describes specifically mutual aid Um, which is not a term that I've ever used in that context before, but in like thinking about how does your paladin need to take care of your cleric such that your cleric can cast healing spells later. Um, And thinking not only about yourself as a protagonist, but as a crew of people um, who are trying to like, solve problems together and then from there once you've got this like really great idea of what this community could be and these players in particular were strangers to one another before playing um, once you've created a community within them then you can focus on the individual problems each of these players had to like role play solutions for how they could approach these situations from a better point of view in real life later um after developing this like group uh, camaraderie and work ethic to then support one another in the struggles that they personally had instead of um, just the struggles of the group. And so taking this like step from seeing 
um, them not only as like valuable peers to you, but valuable peers whose own problems must be supported and not just when it materially benefits you. And that was... I've never heard anyone like discuss gaming in that way or discuss that structure of gaming, which honestly, the next time I'm starting a campaign, I'm going to think very strongly about like, yeah, how do we build the group work ethic? How do we do this other thing? That's so interesting to me because I feel like, like, I think Dungeons and Dragons is not the game that I would choose to talk about if I were going to talk about like games that are in the vein of like poetics of the oppressed, but like, like games like belonging outside belonging games that are by nature, a leftist in their orientation like all of those games have a like deeply explicitly anarchist worldview but also like i i found when i go to play them that a lot of people who are not familiar with that style get really freaked out by it they don't feel like they can hook into it and i think scaffolding a campaign that way is really really smart because it does like the interstitial stuff because i think like the critique that nick raised of bowal before in terms of like, we shouldn't assume that people don't have this consciousness already. Um, I think there is an argument to be made that like, you do need to kind of scaffold people into being able to like, feel, feel equipped to really like dig into that. Like, I I think there is like, maybe not for everybody, but there, there is value to sort of building in like a, an intermediary stuff, like an inter and in between space where you can sort of be like, okay, like let's, let's all get on the same page and let's all clear to like figure this out together for a little bit. Well, and and like Younghee Lee talks about this in volume 40 of Theater Research International, uh, specifically with reference to Boal and a, a workshop that if I understand correctly, Boal actually led that she participated in, where she talks about how the lack of scaffolding in kind of traditional uh, theater of the oppressed structures was actually very alienating for her as a person for whom English is a second language for a person who in the workshop she was in was the only non-white person uh, in the workshop, if I'm remembering correctly. And the the presumption that all anybody needs is like an invitation uh, and then and then like or or not even an invitation uh although it sounds like ball mostly did do a good job of like framing it as an invitation but in some ways all anybody needs is to be like pulled into this artistic process and that will like teach them to liberate themselves and also that everyone inherently wants to engage in this artistic this particular very specific artistic process is in its own ways fraught <laughs> and challenging and yeah, I think in the tabletop world, that's, you know, I've read somebody once I disagree with about a lot of things, but one thing he said about Dungeons and Dragons was like, you know, why is it that Dungeons and Dragons is so, uh, you know, wired to the idea of like ancestry and class as building blocks of the game? And it's because like, yeah, because they're building blocks and it's easy for a new person a person who's new to the game to be like, okay, I am an elf fighter. And I pro even if I've never played this game before, I probably have some idea of what each of those words mean. And that like gives me a way in that for comparison, say Shadowrun, where it's like, here's a whole bunch of numbers and like you can make anything, but also that means you have no structure is can be like very alienating for somebody who is not used to that kind of uh, play. I think one of the things that's interesting about thinking about this all 
is that games and theater of the oppressed but really especially games occupy this very strange space in terms of the the very idea of action um so balsa miguel balsa in i'm gonna butcher the name of this journal gestos gestos i don't know I'm guessing it's German. Uh, in the November 2008 issue of that journal, uh, he ha- has an essay where he ties together Hannah Arendt, Antonin Artaud, and Auguste Boal. Um, and one of the things that's interesting about this is he frames them in terms of Arendt's distinction between praxis and poesis, which is basically the difference between action on the one hand, and making things on the other. And he says this is basically what Boal is pointing at. It's like Boal's obsessed with action because he wants everything to be a rehearsal, a continual, like, renewing, a present-focused engagement with the world around us, as opposed to the poesis thing of we're going to, like, make an art and deliver it to you, the spectator-slash-consumer. But games live in a really weird space between those things. Like, not only because you are both spectator and participant, but because on a fundamental level, if you're playing a game, are you making something? Usually in a tabletop role-playing game, you don't have, like, an idea of what the endpoint is, which is one of the fundamental parts of the making model. You know, like, if I tried to put on a production of Death of a Salesman and... I cut the character of Willie Loman, like people are going to come at me and be like, you didn't really do death of a salesman because there's, because there's a product that's expected. And in tabletop games, that's usually not the case at the same time, as I understand it from Balsa's essay, praxis is traditionally understood as being like very real, very rooted in the non-fictitious like Percy was talking about with Boal earlier. And so like, yeah, slaying a dragon is not that. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, it's also as real as it gets. You know what I mean? In the like Judith Butler sense of performance. You know, when I say I try to stab the dragon. I like that's that is me doing it. Yeah, the person at the table says, great, roll to hit. Right. And and that's and that's a resolution mechanic. But in articulating in articulating the action, I have. Yeah, exactly. Like in the I, in the shared fiction that you are creating at the table, like that is a real thing that you have now done. Yeah. So it's yeah, I, I find that the idea of that binary really fruitful for understanding Boal and then also really fascinating for trying to figure out where in that do games and particularly tabletop role playing games fall. Mm-hmm. Are they praxis? Are they just made up blather? So um Another another person I read, um, Anne M. Goodall, um, views TTRPGs as this liminal space, um, which I also kind of want to circle back to your idea about chess. Um, but in her dissertation, Magic, Adventure, and Social Participation, colon, tabletop role-playing games and their potential to promote social inclusion and citizenship, which is quite long, Um, She talks about TTRPGs being this liminal space where ideas can be explored, actions can be played with, um, and we can explore uh, like what are the consequences of behavior, what are um, possible resolutions that we can come to if we do X or Y or Z. And she sees it as this space between where a player is in real life and where they might like to be. 
Um, and the TTRPG space allows them to explore the like intermediary step of like what would they need to do in their life to become the actualized and idealized version of themselves, um, which relates to uh, this idea that Boal has in one of the exercises where he would like have people sculpt an image out of other performers of like what their world is for them right now, sculpt a version of like what an ideal version of that is, and then sculpt an intermediary step of like what are the actions one would need to take in order to make that ideal world real. And while Anne Goodall is not um, describing TTRPGs through Boal's lens, um, there definitely seems to be a synergy between her idea of like how players can explore this liminal space to become idealized versions of themselves um, or affect change on the world. And she did interviews with a bunch of people that explored like gender, um, people who were reinserting themselves into society after um, perhaps being imprisoned, um, a lot of different things, or like people with disabilities who felt that they were in some way or another like isolated socially um, from greater community and society and was interested in like, how can we use games to promote um, both socialization, but also like citizenship, like how do people and not like in a how does one become a better Canadian citizen? She's Canadian. Um, how does one become like a better Canadian citizen? But like, how do we recognize ourselves, not just as like people in a place, but as members of a community in that place? And how can games do that? Not just in a game space, but in a real space, um, which I thought was really interesting. And then jumping back to this chess idea, um, she viewed chess as a liminoidal uh, space because... Uh, a modification, not quite liminal. Um, it was my first encounter with that word too. Um, where yes, For when you're playing Nick chess, and I both made a face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, when you're playing chess, you are playing chess, and there is a story that's being told, but it is not a story about you. Um, it is a story about chess. It is a story about armies. Um, for instance, and it was an interesting idea. I'll we'll put a link in. The, you can. Yeah. Feel for yourselves whether you like the word liminoidal or not, but what I think it's what we're not about a fun to do, mouthfeel. What we're not about to do, Nicholas, is argue about the narrative of chess, which is well, what I, I just I, I just think that's interesting because the because it I, I think the narrativization of chess depends on the players. Mm-hmm. Sure, I like I would just argue that is not inherent to chess the way that narrative is inherent to tabletop role playing. I would agree. I think that's true. Um, to circle back a little bit to this sort of this sort of question of like the binary between the real and the fabricated or this sort of idea um, of building an intermediary step. I think this has a lot of kinship with uh, some stuff that I have been that I read for this episode and also that I've just been thinking about a lot recently because I've been reading a lot of Octavia Butler, um, because I think there is this really long standing tradition of science fiction and fantasy that is exploring uh, pressing and current social issues. Like I think a lot of like there's a lot of literature in those genres that are exploring real world social change and like sort of proposing solutions or, you know, offering cautionary tales or, or what have you like these both have really well-documented links to commenting on social issues via their sort of utopian or dystopian world building. And a lot of TTRPGs live in those worlds. Like 
um, for example, Shadowrun lives in this sort of cyberpunk universe. You have um, tons of games that are sort of really, really rooted in genre. And I would argue that like the majority of tabletop role playing games are living in some kind of genre world by nature. And the thing that makes me sort of think about is how this specific like form of a tabletop game impacts players' relationship to social change through the way that it is, it is sort of like embracing genre. Like there are a lot of people who write about how the reason that science fiction and fantasy writers tend to use that to write about social change is because it doesn't feel as quote unquote real to us um, because it is in this world that has a lot of things that are not familiar. Um, it's, it's mediated through this thing that is distant from us so that we maybe feel safer thinking about these things because it doesn't feel uh, pressing or like it will have an immediate impact on the lives that we're living. For example, Joshua Brickley uh, in a, in an article about TTRPGs and like how they develop empathy writes, quote, science fiction and fantasy give us great leeway to explore our world through them because we can experiment with our reactions to the metaphors they represent and transfer those reactions into reality even those that don't have a message, although rhetorical criticism would argue that doesn't exist, our minds are going to draw our own parallels. So the question that raises for me is, does abstracting the world through genre in tabletop role-playing games help uh, those games engage more deeply in sort of the mission of Boal spectatorship, which is sort of this consciousness raising, this sort of equipping us with tools that we need for real life change? Um, like, is this sort of relationship between games and genre one of the sort of tools that it has that sort of enables it to like use these mechanisms effectively? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. And I do think, I, I guess here's the, here's the thing for me. And, and it, it, it's one of the things that fundamentally, like I, as I'm sure listeners have gleaned, I have a very complex relationship with Augusto. Um, oh yeah. On a first name basis. Though. We're on a first name <laughs> basis. Um, uh, but, but, Thinking about their connection to genre, which I agree exists, and I do think it helps engage with that like idea of spectatorship. So, like on that level, yes, but on the level of consciousness raising, there's a there's a like long liberatory tradition in science fiction, but I don't know that it's inherent mm. to the genre because like H.P. Lovecraft was also writing about the social issues of his day. He was writing about miscegenation and how he didn't like it. That's true. And, and there's a there's a there are, is a hugely successful tabletop role playing game, Call of Cthulhu, that's built on his work and his legacy. And I want to be clear that I have I do not know Call of Cthulhu like as a as a game. It may I I, I actually think I have heard that it has done work, successful work or not. I'm not sure to like shuck that. The but, gross racism. <laughs> the gross racism, yes. But like I think that is um I it's still it's kind of rooted in eugenics and it's kind of like its mechanics are rooted in in ableism and eugenics. Yeah, I and I mean I don't really know how you'd build a game based on HP Lovecraft's work that wasn't rooted in eugenics and and uh racism. Totally. Um and ableism. So I was like, there's yeah, another the, word that's the, floating. The question that I'm thinking about more is that like I think based on like, and this is purely anecdotal based on like discourse that I have seen personally. So it's certainly not representative of like all of the conversations that exist about it. But I think I see the conversations that I see about, for example, like Shadowrun or cyberpunk that are these games that like contain within them, as Todd mentioned before, this sort of like orientation to the world 
to borrow a Sarah Ahmed um, phrase, um, they sort of have this attitude that you are as a player sort of like subtly put in the position of, you know, being anti-corporate or being anti-capitalist. Like, you know, you're being sort of set into a specific worldview, um, but that's not necessarily what the game explicitly sets out to do. It's not necessarily like you're not entering the game saying, I'm going to join a, you know, join a union that overthrows the government. And I, the conversations that I see about these games are very, very different. Um, there's a game by Jennifer Adcock called The Price of Coal, which is um, a fairly realistic depiction of the Battle of Blair Mountain, which is a really famous labor uprising in Appalachia in the 1920s. Um, and it is like explicitly like you are playing characters who are coal miners and who are members of the union and people who love those coal miners, et cetera. And like you deal with the Pinkertons coming and you, you know, deal with like the company store prices going up like you are explicitly living out these real life things. And the conversations that I see about those games are very, very different because the latter game feels so much more real. And I think that's interesting. And I don't have like a takeaway necessarily, but I think the abstraction is a useful and interesting tool. Although like one could argue that like the price of coal is a much more like Bowalian game. Mm -hmm. Well, I would also say that the, well, it's not uh, an abstraction. The temporal distance between 2022 and 1921 also adds to that. Like, mm -hmm. um, this is something that happens in theater, too, all the time, where, like, many history plays are often about today. Um, and we're just, like, using a specific historical moment to explore issues of the day in a way that feels more safe and more distant. Uh, and so, like, I mean, the easiest example that comes to mind is The Crucible, which all sorts of feelings about John Proctor and all sorts of other things and how it is not a great or good telling of <laughs> what happened <laughs> in American history. But the but, point of the, the that's not what the play is trying to do. The play is trying to describe McCarthyism. And I think it does that very well and does it in a safe way where, like, he did not have to go to jail for being a communist, possibly. <laughs> like, Arthur Miller wasn't accused of being a communist when he wrote an incredibly anti-McCarthyist play mm -hmm. during McCarthyism. Yeah. Um, and so, like, that is being used as a safety net. And I think that, not not in a bad way, I'm not trying to, like, tamp that down, but that distance, that temporal distance allowed people to view those events, view parallels, and wonder like, like I would wonder if Jennifer Adcock um, would do a version of that uh, about Amazon. Yeah. And Amazon warehouses. The, and like, how would we the feel? Exact example yeah, <laughs> the exact example. Right. But yeah. like the, the thing that is happening right now, like I would be interested in seeing um, a game about unionization efforts um, in, uh, oh, geez, where did it, the, in Bessemer, Alabama. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's definitely like, I think she chose to kickstart it because the Kickstarter for it just ended like a couple months ago. Like she, mm. this is a, a good moment to, yeah. to develop and release this game. Well, and it, it goes back to what Joshua Brickley said about, yeah, like even if it's not laid out for us, we will, because people are pattern making, mm -hmm machines um or our brains are at least um like we will we will draw the conclusions um that make sense to us based on the information that we're being presented but i yeah i i think it's i think it's interesting because i think what games are explicitly doing and what i think 
theater forum theater is doing as well is sort of offering us this situation where we have access to agency that we might not necessarily directly we might not we might not have it or we might not know that we have it in our in our real lives like obviously i don't have access to a a bow and arrow um you know or a magic sword in my in my real life um but there is like something really i think useful and educational to entering like a game situation where I do have access to those things in order to solve my problems. And I can sort of think through like, Oh, or even like, you know, I don't have an 18 in my charisma score in real life. Um, but what about in a game space where I do, like how would I approach things differently as a different person or with a, as a person with different skills and how might I, you know, adjust to become more like that character if I find that that's useful to me. Thank you for your patience. I found my way into my point. <laughs> No, absolutely. And I think, uh, I, I don't know who added this quote, but I think it's good. Oh, yeah. I, I read a, another uh, article by Coleman Gallioretto, uh that is talking about games like The Price of Coal. Uh, and they say, escape a storytelling and RPGs consequently aren't actually about ignoring hardship, but experiencing narratives where people have the skills, positions and opportunities to challenge the outrageous fortunes of their lives, end quote, um, which is sort of getting to it's sort of rejecting the way that a lot of people dismiss um, like fantasy and sci-fi and other things that are deemed like escapist as having no real connection or value where, you know, as Todd says, with Todd's very good example, like actually it could have, it could have many, many uh, implications. It it could very, very well connect to the lives that we're living. Um, It's just not necessarily laid out for you. I, that quote immediately reminded me of one of my favorite lines from Ursula Le Guin's uh, no time to spare where she says the direction of a, she asks rhetorically the direction t- of escape is toward freedom so what is escapism an accusation of which is just as you know as novelists are want to do is just such a wonderfully like pithy Mike summation <laughs> of that whole situation <laughs> damn ursula yeah i fucking love her <laughs> um but anyway all of this to say um, beyond like the broad benefits of playing TTRPGs that have to do with like these different psychological studies conclusions about like creativity and social skills and problem solving and critical thinking um, and the way that they can sort of teach you how to work together as a group and sort of weigh material like, you know, the needs of other people without material benefit to you. I think games can also offer us experience navigating real life struggles in a world where we have more tools and where we have narrative agency such that like playing a TTRPG offers you like a rehearsal for revolution as it were in, in your real life. Tune Mike in drop. next week for the exciting <laughs> conclusion Tune in of next our week kids for, on bikes campaign. Tune in next week for some spoiler alert, civic action. Bum, bum, bum. Dungeons and drama nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus. Percival Hornack, Nicholas Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertaltine. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DNDramaNerds. Check out our cast bios on our website, DungeonsAndDramaNerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Dungeons and Drama Nerds.